Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Welcome to the Next Real Speakeasy, everybody, on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hello, everybody. On the Next Real Speakeasy, we invite an industry guest to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, film composer Harry Gregson Williams. Born in England to a musical family, Harry earned a musical scholarship to St. John's College, Cambridge, at the young old age of seven. He then went on to gain a spot at London's Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And then after school, he became a music teacher, both in England and Egypt. He started working under composer Richard Harvey as his assistant, then orchestrator and arranger for Stanley Myers before composing his first score for Nicholas Roeg. Uh, was that now, is it Cold Heaven or Two Deaths? I saw both of those on IMDb, Harry, but it was confused because you're listed as music associate for one and then musician piano for the last. The, um, Cold Heaven was a Stanley Myers school. And oh, okay. It's a Hans Zimmer school. So I think I played piano for Hans on, on Two Deaths. Okay. So I said he didn't compose the score for, for that one. So, and, and you kind of, you know, you created this relationship, but you met Hans Zimmer and had this relationship with Hans Zimmer and it kind of that really seemed to kind of open up a whole bunch of new worlds for you, right? Well, yeah. I mean, goodness. Um, he's nothing if not uh, brilliant at casting. So his, you know, he, 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 loved, he loves that role. I think he's, he's rather good at it. And I, what he saw in me back in 1995, I, I don't know, but certainly we, we got on really well, pretty quickly. Uh, he was over in London and uh, he was having so much fun. <laughs> um, and he was very persuasive and very encouraging. And uh, I think he was finishing The, the Lion King or um, Crimson Tide. Um, and, you know, when he, he left to come back here to, to Los Angeles, he, he said, you, you know, you, you really should come with me. Um, you know, you, you, can, you can assist me and learn. And I really didn't hesitate. Uh, it was what an opportunity. Um, and actually back then, there, there really were very few people um, that made up his, it was called Media Ventures at that time, his company. And, um, you know, there, there were 
a couple of techs, as you'd imagine, with a Hans operation, um, now music editor, and, and uh, Nick Glennysmith was kind of the outgoing uh, composing assistant. You know, he, he was graduating, if you like. Um, so there was a, a spot there, um, which I, I kind of jumped at. And then you ended up working with him on on The Rock, I think, was yeah, right around then, right? And Nick, yes. Yeah. That that was a, a baptism of fire, if ever there was one. <laughs> so, you know, from there, you know, I found myself working with Trevor Rabin on Armageddon, uh, you know, which is also a, a Jerry Bruckheimer thing. Uh, uh, and uh, a little later on uh, Enemy of the State, which is where I met uh, Tony Scott in my guise as a composer at that time, not assisting Hans any longer. And, you know, time, it was a, a life-changing uh, relationship, rather like my relationship with Hans, actually. So, you know, I, I always look back on these things as, as I couldn't tell you which was more kind of seminal and important to me, but that they, they all have been. Well, I mean, your list of, of films that you've uh, composed for, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, a lengthy, lengthy list. I mean, you mentioned Enemy of the State. You've done a bunch of animated films, uh, a number for DreamWorks, like Ants. You did all the Shrek films, mm-hmm. uh, Chicken Run. Uh, one of my favorite scores of yours is actually Sinbad, which is oh. funny because I've never actually seen the movie. Yeah, uh, nice. that, that, but, <laughs> but I love the music. Animation, I think. Uh, it, it was yeah. so unsuccessful at the box office. I'm sorry, I had the... <laughs> yes, to, that was a, a dubious pleasure to be connected to such an unsuccessful <laughs> film. But it gave me a wonderful opportunity to write sort of a swashbuckling music uh, big orchestral symphonic music which is absolutely and the sirens track on there is just stunning i mean that's a real stunner and then of course you also did worked on team america so kind of a (laughs) totally different type of uh yes of animation and Mm. uh and then yeah i mean from tony scott you jumped into uh working with ridley scott you did a bunch of stuff with him was kingdom of heaven the first time that you worked with him or yes absolutely and that you know that that when i look back on it that um my experience on that was uh the movie that that really gave me to score um, was a lot longer than the movie that, that that we ended up with, and consequently, it was a lot more music. I, I don't think I've ever written so much music for a single movie, but it was really pleasurable for me. Particularly, you know, it was Kingdom of Heaven. There was quite a lot of choral work I was able to do on that, and I was really busting to do that. You know, I was really, really looking looking for a project where, where I could. I could go to town with a, a choir, and yeah, that that was a very different experience to The Martian uh, a few years, well, a couple of years ago now, where the movie that I got was almost the movie that you saw in theatres. You know, it was so final, almost. There was no um, fiddling about with that. They had their cut, the performances were good, the script was tight, but with Kingdom, it evolved much more. Well, it's, they're just beautiful. Kingdom is one of my very favorites. Spy Game as well is at the very top of my list, which is just delightful. We've got a couple of more in here that we have to note. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, you've got The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian. Uh, uh, Jolene, Andy loves that because it was filmed in Arizona, uh, yeah, partially, partially his, right here, yeah. his home. Uh, we A couple of other movies we've talked about on this uh, film uh, or on this show, The Town, uh, a delightful uh, score, and uh, Arthur Christmas, another animated, and uh, you already <laughs> mentioned the martian uh yeah arthur christmas has become a staple in our house we've got kids of a certain age and so we're we're listening to you every year uh and uh, and most recently uh the zookeeper's wife which which again is is a whole different sort of uh tonal approach uh for a a period piece yeah and that you know that was very much a labor of love and you know that was one of those precious opportunities to work with uh yeah 
a really, really cool director, Nikki Cow, and uh, uh, yeah, I really valued that experience. Just as a, a, a fun aside, I also think it's kind of worth pointing out that you are a part of the Brother Composer Club, <laughs> since your brother Rupert Gregson Williams also yes. composes. Uh, I would 20, say we don't quite have a dynasty like the Newmans do. Like the so. Newmans, uh, <laughs> but then there's also the the Danas, the the Shermans, yes. and and even I guess you could say the Bacon Brothers <laughs> to right. a certain extent. It's uh, yeah, it's funny. There seem to be a lot of uh, brother composers out there. We have some questions for, from our uh, our online community over uh, that we have through Patreon. I wanted to throw a few questions away before we jump into the movie we're going to sure. be talking about tonight. Um, you already talked about Hans Zimmer and, and working with the Media Ventures now Remote Control. I guess you kind of already answered this, but I mean, is there anything else you want to say about working in that environment? And I, I know it can be very collaborative. Uh, I know a lot of people have kind of come through it and it, it you know, it always, it, it piques my curiosity as a thing. And you mentioned that Hans Zimmer is kind of like, it's almost like, it sounded the way you described it, like he's almost like a casting director helping kind of find the right people for the right films. Is that how you kind of see that? It's, you know, in, in the misty past now, quite a long way in the past, you know, he, he really hasn't changed much. He's, he's the same jovial chap on the one hand and then completely petrified on the other hand. You know, I've I've always liked that about him. He, he's very real to me. You know, he has the same issues as all of us composers do. You know, he, he experiences a lot of anxiety. He experiences some success uh, and 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 otherwise. But you know, he 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 was always very straightforward with me. You know, he, he gave me a very firm push in this direction. You know, the direction of film music. And I was able to learn a lot from him from kind of hovering in the back of his room and not, not being the full guy uh, or, or the spotlight being on him, not me. Um, and, the, you know, for, for a couple of years. And that was very, that was really valuable. It seems like an incredible opportunity for composers. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's great that he does that. Really, it's it's pretty mm -hmm. awesome. We've got a question on directors that you like working with, or what is it? I suppose the implied question is, what is it about directors that you particularly like working with as a composer? We've mentioned already Tony and Ridley Scott and Nicholas Rogue and Ben Affleck and you know, Ardman, Peter Lord and, and Nick Park. What is it about uh, directors that you like working with that makes them uh, great directors for composers? Well, I think it's it's what they're giving me. You know, it's the film. It's their ability to make a film that's interesting for a composer. You know, you mentioned Ben Affleck, for instance. You know, I didn't, of the four films that he's made, I, I unfortunately didn't do Argo, which is probably the most successful of all of them. But um, nonetheless, the other three that I've done, you know, we've developed a, a certain shorthand and, uh, you know, a personal relationship through going through the ringer on these things because you know nothing comes particularly easily you know someone like him it's it's a pleasure to go over the edge again and see what one might find and and, and you know the, the more that you get to know a chap the more he kind of knows how to push your buttons and sometimes not a, not in a fun way but 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 in a way that perhaps gets you to perform in a way that perhaps you wouldn't if the, if the relationship were not so well developed. Kind of piggybacking off of that question, at what point in any of these particular projects do you get involved? I mean, I guess sometimes you're probably involved earlier than other times. Uh, how, does yeah, that, how does that usually work? It really does vary. It really varies. The film that I'm just finishing up, uh, a film called Breath, um, and it's directed by an actor who uh, called Simon Baker, who... who 
who is in it, but he, he he's um, he's turned his hand to directing. This is his first film, I think. And I joined the party when he already had pretty much a fine cut of the film, so very late in the day. I had enough time to, to do the score and to work with him, collaborate with him. But that's quite unusual. Usually, you know, there, there will be more time and one's scoring a film that's not necessarily perfectly defined yet. And so one's almost helping the director find his movie. And there's there's definitely a lot of, you know, running down one path and then realizing you have to come back down and go up another path, musically speaking. So ideally, you know, one's involved as early as possible because more more time is, is always what one's looking for. More time ha- has to mean more thought, more care, more attention. This is a, a kind of more of a technical and uh, possibly a, a lighter question. When you're composing, what's with all the M's in the titles during recording sessions? <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, this is very simple to, to answer. <laughs> I think, I think we, all, we all do it slightly differently, but um, the way I guess Hans taught me, um, because that's the way that I do it. Um, um, if, if your film has, say, five reels, and you know that they've been the film has been broken up into five different you know different audio files and different different video files for you. One identifies each cue uh, with the first number relating to the reel. So the very first cue in the movie, and and the second the number that comes after the M, that would relate to the number chronologically of the cues. So the first cue would be 1M1. So it's it's real one, and it's the first cue of the movie. So wheel on, say, 20 minutes into your movie, you're probably in real two by now, and say there have been six cues in real one, and you're writing the seventh cue, and it's the first cue in real seven. That will be called 2M7. Oh, so okay. It's seventh cue of the movie, and it, and it will be identified with its first number, Hey, what what is does M stand for music? I don't know. <laughs> it's funny, but it's, I know that it goes between the two numbers, and that's how we identify. <laughs> well, it's funny so because if you hear of a cue called six M forty nine, right? The late in the movie, it's real six, and there've been you know, forty eight cues before it. It's interesting that it's kind of stuck with that real thing yeah. because it's it seems kind of outdated now, but I guess that's just how it goes like it, how do they even identify us. reels anymore it, uh, it works for us because because you know it's 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 not so it's not so overwhelming to yeah, yeah. sure to, to, to look at the whole we've, we've got a question here on temp tracks we'd like to wonder what your thoughts are on temp tracks and how particularly they've affected the work of of composers again i, I can only really speak from my own experience you know temp tracks are crucial for not the composer certainly not to begin with but you know, for, for the editor and, and the director. I mean, we all know that creating the right rhythm and length of scenes, selecting the right shots and staying w- with a shot a certain length of time, you know, it's, it's really handy for the director to hear mu- music as he's doing that to help him imagine how things are going to flow. So, you know, I've never seen it as something that, just put that to torture me. It's something that, you know, diff- different directors treat differently, but I think they all have one thing in common. They, they, they use it as a tool 
in order to help them not just imagine but help their movie play out in a certain way now certain directors may fall in love with the the, the music that they they temp in and that could cause you know a composer problems later on but not insurmountable problems you know i i, I think a composer who tells you that 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 he's he's trapped and has nowhere to go by a temp track is maybe being a bit lazy i mean the point is, if, if something works rhythmically, perfectly for a director, you know, a piece of temp music, yeah, hopefully not <laughs> melodically or harmonically, because, you know, I don't know where you go there. But, you know, there's the, the something about the tone and texture of a piece of temp music. I think as composers, you have to take that on board and work out what you're going to do as relates to your score, not am I going to rip this off or, or do I have to do the same as this? I, I don't see that at all. Yeah, it's it's always an interesting thing, uh, and I mean, it's I know it's something that uh, that comes up a lot, uh, especially with, it seems like Ridley Scott's films seem to be something that it pops up quite a bit in. So it's it's good hearing kind of from your perspective as somebody who's worked with Ridley Scott. Yeah, do you know I can't, I mean the last film I did with him was The Martian. I, I don't recall the the composer part of a composer's you know part part of his lot is going to be if if he does feel a bit trapped. With a piece of temp music, he's got to be smart enough to find a way out of that. Sure, yeah. And uh, and uh, to understand what it is, you know, that's turning the director on. I, th- I, you know, I think an easy way out would be to, you know, basically cop it and say, okay, well, I'm going to change the top note here. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. What, uh, another question from the community. What are your thoughts on technology in film composing? Do you use a lot of, uh, as he says, Hans Zimmer-esque technology to compose, or is it more traditional? Yeah, no, I, I mean, when I showed up in, in 1995, I was a pen and paper guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, Hans, Hans kind of put me in a, a tiny room and, and with a, a, an Apple computer and said, look, you've you got to learn how to use a sequencer uh, and please don't come out until you you have <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so it kind of baffled me I, there wasn't i wasn't expecting that I, I had no experience of that everything i had written um before that i've been you know pen and paper and what, whatnot but um no I, I embraced that and there's a really good reason why it's very advantageous to be able to use samples and create really awesome mock-ups for a a director to be able to collaborate with you. I mean, otherwise, if one's asking a director to imagine, you know, how the music's going to be or, or like sit at the piano and, and tinkle away and say, well, you know, th- this will be a bunch of French horns. Ultimately, it's going to sound really powerful. Um, you know, that's quite a stretch. And uh, so, yeah, we, we have, uh, we've come to a, a place where I think you'll find most composers have embraced technology so much so that, the, you know, that, that uh, it's, it's, it's part of our lives. I love it. It's not where I kind of started at all. Our, uh, our last question for the community, is there a different process for you for composing for an animated film versus a live action film? And I suppose we could take that both ways, creatively and uh, technically. No, not really. Technically, no. And creatively, not really, because, you know, I think back to the first animation I did, um, Ants, uh, you know, for, for Jeffrey Katzenberger, mm-hmm. DreamWorks, and I think struggling to, to find a way into that movie, you know, I, I do recall him saying, look, for God's sake, can you just 
don't, don't focus on them all being ants. This is a Woody Allen movie. This is romancing <laughs> stone. And in, in many ways, he, he, he was really, he, he was on something because, you know, take a Shrek movie, for instance, you know, the, there's, you know, Shrek adores Fiona and uh, a lot of the movies are concerned with them being apart and him trying to get them back together again. And, you know, this could be, could be a live action scenario. Uh, and so I think when looking for the sort of emotional arc of a character, it's made little difference that, that um, a lot of the films that I have scored have been animated. I think that uh, let's let's shift our conversation here um, and jump into the movie that we're here to talk about. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, it, I, it's amazing you know, learning all this information about you. But uh, something that I, I also found very interesting uh, is one of your favorite movies uh, is Silver Linings Playbook, and that's what we're actually here to talk about tonight. The whole time you're rooting for this Hemingway guy to survive the war and to be with the woman that he loves. It's four o'clock in the morning, Pat. I can't apologize. I will apologize on behalf of Ernest Hemingway, because that's who's to blame here. Yeah, have Ernest Hemingway call us and apologize to us, too. Pat, you have to have a strategy. I hate my illness, and I want to control it. I hope you're okay with Veronica's sister coming over. Tiffany and Tommy? Just Tiffany. What happened to Tommy? He died. How'd he die? Please, don't bring it up. Hey, Tiffany. This is Pat. You look nice. Thank you. How'd Tommy die? No. Oh. What meds are you on? I used to be on lithium and Seroquel. I was on Xanax. You ever take Klonopin? Klonopin, yeah. Like, is it what? I'm tired. I want to go. Are you going to walk me home or what? You have poor social skills. You have a problem. I have a problem? Mm -hmm. You say more inappropriate things than appropriate things. I love the, the sort of dysfunction of it. Uh, really appeals to me. Um, I, I, I love the characters. They, they, they feel really flawed but honest. Um, I like David O. Russell's movies. I like the cast. There's a lot, lot of like I like about it. We've, you know, we've got a lot to talk about about this movie and your relationship to it. But the thing I think that surprised me the most, and I, you know, it, it is, I know as I'm about to say these words, they're totally ridiculous. But it seems so strange to me that we're talking to you with your body of work that you are choosing a film that is not particularly strong in score. No, yeah, I thought I thought about that, but um, when asked what my three or four sort of top movies were, that yeah. this definitely is one, and that, and. Uh, it's not lacking in music. This movie, you know, no, no. uses uses songs and instrumental music. Let, let's say needle drops. You know, not score yeah, right. score per se. You know, quite a lot. Um, so music plays a huge part in this movie. Just yeah, I, I guess you know, if it would have been Lawrence of Arabia or something, then we, you know, we'd have a, <laughs> different conversation. Seminal well, score. I mean, I think don't worry, my, my favorite movie is not particularly strong in podcasts either, so <laughs> I, I know it's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's absolutely, um, there's, there's a lot I like about it, but it, 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 this film doesn't hinge on the score. David O. Russell is such an interesting filmmaker. He's, uh, he's, he seems to be a filmmaker who is very... Um, I, I want to say big, like he really, like there's just, and I don't know if that's the right word, but there's, there's really an energy to the way that he puts films together that I find uh, very appealing. Um, it doesn't, the films don't always work for me, but uh, when they do, boy, they really work uh, incredibly well. And this film, I, I think that he really tapped into this, uh, just kind of this, this manic energy of Pat, um, our lead character, uh, and Tiffany really, just kind of this kind of mental illness pairing that they have and just the energy that he infuses into films. I mean, it really seems to come through um, very strongly in this story and it really connects with the characters uh, just brilliantly, I think. It's based on a book, but which I never read. Um, but I, I didn't, I found this movie to be 
very unshowy, but it's not like we, we're in that sort of um, <clears throat> in that land where, like Birdman, for instance. I mean, you know, the, the, the cinematography and the whole concept of how they shot that movie. So we're not in 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 any particularly extraordinary way of making a movie here. He just does it so well, I think, and lets the actors play. Or even something like uh, Three Kings, which you already mentioned. I mean, that has some crazy cinematography going yeah. on there. You know, I, immediately when you said that, I thought of when they're talking about getting shot in the gut or in, the, in your lungs and how you follow the bullet, like enter the right, right, right. the body cavity and you see everything happening. I mean, it's just very interesting. Here it is very much more focused on on the characters. I mean, there still is this this energy around the way the camera, yeah. camera moves and almost like dances around the camera characters and the editing and everything. But yeah, it's nothing quite as over the top as some stuff that he's done in the past. It's, it's an interesting thing. You mentioned the, it's based on the book by Matthew Quick and, and I find the connection between David O. Russell's response to the material and Matthew's response to creating it. Uh, Quick, uh, the author, says that his inspiration for the novel is that he he wanted people uh, that when they read the book who might be feeling alone to feel less alone, right? He, He wrote the book to convince himself that silver linings were possible. Uh, he was in the middle of making a transition. He was an English teacher at the time and wanted to become a full-time author, and that this was the book that got him over the hump there. Well, David O. Russell discovers this, and and uh, it finds that it so closely mirrors his own life and his relationship with his son, uh, who is facing who faces similar challenges to uh, Bradley Cooper's character, although it was a young child at the time, uh, that he, he said he just had to make this movie. He had such a deep personal connection to the material itself and and uh, you know he is effectively de niro and his son is, is bradley cooper and he said that was that was the movie that he wanted to make to make his fun, son feel like he's a part of this world too i found that uh really compelling and it actually it made me enjoy the movie uh that much more uh this viewing uh, things that i i didn't know before reading up on it absolutely but i you know i i like i mean i think um Bradley Cooper's character actually says, stay positive and you might have a shot at a silver lining. Just right there, I love the positivity and the, the optimism of, of these characters who, on the face of it, are, you know, have really very little to be optimistic and happy about. But they kind of create their own world. I didn't come away from the movie feeling like I'd been sort of preached to about any particular mental illness subject that I discovered these two characters in the midst of their, of their pretty much hell and how David Russell hand, handles it. And I, you know, it just, I just thought it was perfect. And, you know, it, it's as much emotionally affecting uh, as it is funny. I, I, I find a lot of it really funny. Well, you mentioned the honesty that uh, that David O. Russell kind of infuses his characters with. I mean, they really have this sense of honesty. And I think that by doing that, he's allowing kind of the mental illness uh, that the characters have just to be kind of part of life. It's not, you know, we're not focusing on that. I mean, certainly it's kind of a critical part of the story as, you know, as Pat Jr. is really dealing with his mental illness and the fact that it put it, got him into this mental institution and all of that sort of stuff. But, but really it's just, I mean, that's his character and we're just, he's just living life and we're just watching and everybody's just kind of dealing with life. And it's, it's just, it, it's how people handle stuff and it does really make it much more accessible and it just makes it like, it's just, it's just there. It doesn't have to be this big, scary thing. Right. And I, I really appreciated that in this, in this. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at his, his parents, you know, the, the De Niro and Jackie Weaver characters, 
I mean, they're they're pretty messed up themselves. I, I love there's a, there's a line early on when I guess he's talking about his marriage and trying to defend uh, his expectations for for, for Nikki, the, his his wife, um, and says something like, um, "You know, we're we're just as in love as you two." And right at that moment, you realise, I mean, they might be in love, but they're not really behaving like they are. I mean, his parents. Um, and they they have issues as well. I mean, you know, he's, he, he's guys are he's an oddball. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things I like so much about it. I mean, Andy made the point earlier that, that David O. Russell, you know, he tends to work big, you know, he works big. But, but so much of this is like the, the intimacy that we get with not just the sort of mental illness of uh, Cooper and the deep sorrow and grief of of Jennifer Lawrence but but the the just day-to-day mental illness that impacts all of us when we go to family reunions and thanksgivings and like we we all are on some sort of a spectrum and i think that's very much what this film highlights for me is the the normalcy of the abnormalities that we experience as human organisms and i i think that is an uh, an incredibly special message that's buried in here and it's kind of a small message uh, which is a, a kind of a radical departure for David O. Russell and his grandiosity. Uh, basically, be who you are, yeah. and and put a pos- positive spin on things if you can. I mean, the um, the his psychiatrist is it Doctor Patel? Yeah, <laughs> Cliff, Cliff. <laughs> Such a foil for Bradley Cooper's character. So, you know, I, I I love his introduction and, and where his character goes, and you know, the fact that he shows up at that. Uh, the Eagles game. <laughs> and the, I, I never quite knew where the movie was going to take me. That was another thing that I really appreciated about it the first time I saw it. I had no idea. I was rooting for the two leads to get together. Wasn't quite sure whether they would or even if they did, what would happen. But somehow he managed to you know, take us on, on, on a, a trip that, that one couldn't really predict and bring us to a a really warm ending. It's always great when a, a script can do that, when you can watch a movie and go, I really have no idea where I'm going to end up with this one. Yeah. And you don't get that too often, but man, is it special when you are experiencing that and that you're right. I mean, this was one of those ones. I mean, you get the note that there's going to be, you know, she wants to have him help with the dance, but still it's like, how is that going to, you know, tie into the story? You know, where is this whole thing going? Now we've got this bet going on. I mean, there's there's so many things happening. It really, uh, really takes you in a lot of directions. Yeah. No, I liked it. Speaking of the, the dancing, I, you know, I thought some of the sequences where they're practicing, you know, I thought they were just so well done because, I mean, they were, they were obviously heightened. You know, is it possible that he, he learned to dance so quickly and be, be so efficient? But it kind of gave me what I really, really wanted, which is to see them having a good time, being happy, even for just pockets of time. And uh, now I love the Chris Tucker character as well. Very bizarre. <laughs> Can I just kind say pop- that is the very this is the best thing he's ever done. <laughs> yeah, Chris Tucker. No, so, well, he really did it well as well. And he, he really played that character well. Actually, all, all the smaller parts I really liked. I really liked, um, you know, um, Bradley Cooper's friend. Was it John Ortiz? Yeah, right. John mm-hmm. Ortiz is Ronnie. Yeah, I really liked him that way that he felt throttled. No, no. 
talk yeah. to my wife. I feel like I'm yeah. joking. Yeah, it's a delightfully uh, real performance from him. You know, David O. Russell, I just want to back up to him as a director, right? We've talked a little bit about him as a writer, but as a director, it's one of the interesting things I found in an, in an interview with him talking about the dance in particular. And as a director, when you're faced with doing something that you've never done, uh, and in this case, he called the dance his high-wire act that he he had no idea how he was going to direct these sequences, particularly the final sequence, in order to do it in a way that was compelling and interesting, that we haven't given it all away in the practice sequences. How are we going to do this this final thing? And, and one of his big surprises was the final lift, uh, which actually came out in test audiences as something that audiences couldn't quite get enough of. It was originally a really short bit, and they kept pushing it and making it a little bit longer. And every time they made it longer, the test audience audiences would just, they would love it. They would find it just such a powerful and tense experience watching her gripping his face from all those different sides, just trying to hold on for dear life. And it becomes kind of a metaphor for for their experience in the film. Uh, You know, to my eye, the way he directed that, that dance is an ultimate uh, sort of success story of facing that high wire act. And I love the way he talks about that, facing something you've never done before as a director. And that that, that sequence, which ultimately is a rather simple uh, sort of sequence in hindsight, um, sort of hit that bar for him. I thought that was really well executed. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. And, you know, maybe it is, it's quite literal, the, the, the lift, as it were. I mean, it, it, it is an uplifting movie. And I think he, 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 uh, he conjured together some really great performances from the actors. So I think Jennifer Lawrence, especially at the beginning of the movie, she's so sort of reserved. It's really difficult to read her, what she really is thinking. Um, and so when she comes out with things uh, like she does, it's, it's kind of shocking. Um, but uh, yeah, no, he, I, you know, he's a man, he's a director who absolutely has a, a command of what he's doing in my view. And I, it turns out that I, 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 I had to look up the editors, but although two editors credited on the movie, it turns out I think I worked with Jay Cassidy um, years and years and years ago. Um, and he's, he seems to have done a lot of films now with, with uh, David Russell, doesn't he? Um, I think we did um, Antoine Fuqua's first movie together, which is called The Replacement Killers. Oh, way back then. Oh, back fantastic. Six or something, yeah. Yeah, this was their first uh, movie together, Jay Cassidy, and um, and and they they met each other essentially on a blind telephone date. The way they they talk about it, it's a it's a fascinating kind of relationship. But this is an interesting <laughs> thing uh, when when we're talking specifically about building character. Uh, apparently, um, r- the way Russell shoots. Uh, he essentially lets the camera run as long as he can on a take, which is essentially the full sort of 22 minutes. And so they end up with a lot of versions of each character. You know, some characters, uh, some takes of a particular scene, the character is much more affected than another and some and, and much more subdued than others. And so, so much of their effort in the editing booth is to cut together the right versions of the right characters and sort of put these puzzle pieces together. And I, I get the sense that, you know, the what's left on the floor is is essentially two or three other complete movies with very different characters left. To That'd see be interesting up. to see. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, right. I didn't know that. That's a, a, certainly must be quite testing for the the actors to 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 have these long long takes. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I I love the way that the characters play off each other in, in this movie. So he was definitely onto something. 
Cassidy says, for David, editing is just a continuation of screenwriting. It is the final draft. And I thought that was a really lovely and sort of poetic punctuation. Let's talk real quick about the uh, the first shot and last shot of the film. Um, the first shot of the film, uh, we start uh, over black as we hear Pat reading a letter about what Sundays mean to him. Um, as he, this is a letter that he's written to uh, to Nikki, his uh, his wife, who uh, the whole story is about him trying to get back. Uh, and then we also have some text telling us that we're actually at a psychiatric facility. And then we fade up on Pat's back and we track into him as he reads this letter. And someone knocking several times telling Pat that it is time to go. And the last shot, Pat is talking about Sundays again. We've come full circle. He says, Sunday's my favorite day again. And we slowly push in on him with Tiffany in his lap, and they kiss, and they're happy, and it's adorable. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I like, I like the beginning, of the very beginning of the movie. It's, it's um, again, it's, it's difficult. It takes a while for one to kind of get a grip on what sort of movie this is going to be. Um, so he's quite irritable at the beginning, uh, Bradley Cooper's character, isn't he? And it actually, he's once he's bundled in the car and he's on his way home, it, t- it takes the Chris Tucker character to, who hitches a ride to come in and kind of let you know, actually, you, have, you, you really don't know what sort of movie this is going to be. Well, isn't it funny that Chris Tucker is the one who softens the edges of just about every hard scene with Bradley Cooper? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. This is, it's a really nice uh, open and close to the film. I mean, I, I think that the, the shots themselves don't have as much of a thematic connection other than he's alone and then now he's finally with somebody happy. I mean, he's focused on Nikki and alone at the beginning. At the end, he's no longer focused on Nikki and now he's with Tiffany and he's happy. But it also, I think a lot of it is really just about the script and he's talking about Sundays and how important Sundays were to him uh, and how, you know, Nikki didn't know that he loved Sundays and and uh, it kind of, you know, Sundays, the importance of Sundays kind of fell away for him. But now that he's kind of gotten over Nikki and everything's come back and, you know, he's with Tiffany, Sundays, like he says, Sunday's my favorite day again. I like that, the way that this, the script itself really helps kind of tie the beginning and end of the film together. It occurred to me, I mean, Sundays is also football day, isn't it? Yes, so- right, yeah. I don't know whether that's got something to do with it, but um, certainly it's a household that's jumping on a Sunday, yeah. Yeah, and speaking specifically to the the sort of next chapter, I, I almost don't want to say rebuilding, but that's probably uh, appropriate too, rebuilding of his relationship with his father, and certainly his father's rebuilding of his relationship with him. Right. Uh, which which ends up being, I think, as as sort of perfect a relationship as as the one that I love so much between Pat and Tiffany. You know, it's Pat Senior, and and just again the the uh, uh, subtlety with which De Niro actually tones down his natural De Niro ness to play yeah. this dad is is really special. Yeah, no, I'd I'd agree with you. I I, I um as the years have gone by, I'm, I'm less and less drawn to Robert De Niro as an actor, but I was really 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 thrilled in this movie. I thought he was just perfect, pitch perfect, really. He had two scenes that really, uh, for me, it was like, this is this is why I love watching Robert De Niro. One is when he gets so mad at Pat Jr. for not being there. And he's just, he's like, he's so mean. It's like his his superstitions and his his passion for the, the game have like turned him into such this spiteful person. He's like, you're, you're an awful kid and all this. Like he's saying such horrible things to his son. I mean, it just, it broke my heart to watch that scene. And then following that up with the scene where he's talking to Pat when Pat's in bed and, and he's talking to him as a nice quiet scene about how he, he might not have been there as much and and he's kind of tearing up. I mean, it's just like two powerful scenes that it's like, this is De Niro. This is what I love seeing yeah. De Niro do. I agree. Yeah, 
definitely this bright on song. Yeah, that, that it was Robert De Niro with the final sort of, and I, you know, I don't mean this derogatorily, his final sort of Hollywood call to action. You got to go get her. Don't let this, you know, she loves yeah. you. Nikki didn't. She <laughs> loves you. Don't mess this up. I I wanted to leave. I don't even know what I was looking for. I wanted to leave the house. De Niro told me to go look for somebody. <laughs> uh, we, we sort of skipped Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence uh, just in terms of their performances specifically, um, which, you know, I think uh, talking specifically about Jennifer Lawrence because she, I mean, we don't even see her until 24 minutes into the film. Uh, and uh, that gives us a chance to really live in the head of, of Cooper's Pat. Um, and uh, then we're introduced to another very hard character. Yeah, I, that, I, that, that's something I really like about her. her. Her entrance is kind of a bit of a surprise and quite abrupt, isn't it? Um, but she's so sort of magnetic that one really wants to wants her to unload her story, which she duly does. Um, but um, I think she played that character so well. You know, I think we were all struck with her. I don't know whether Winter's Bone was her first movie, but certainly the first movie I saw her in. I thought it was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, she's gone on to star in some big studio-type pictures, but I loved her in this film. I thought she she was just just goofy enough, just, like, off the the beaten track enough to be believable as, you know, as someone with as many hang-ups as this girl has um, with the sort of stuff that she's been through. I thought, I thought she was absolutely brilliant. She, yeah, she was she was so funny. That's what struck me about this. And and I, I don't think Winterbone was her first film. She'd been in, I think, some smaller parts. But I don't think anything that she had been in, uh, at least to my recollection, was funny. I mean, The Hunger Games was right before this. Certainly not a funny movie. Uh, X-Men First Class, uh, you know, even uh, maybe The Beaver, the, the uh, Jodie Foster movie, might have had some comedy. But this, it seemed like David O. Russell found the right way to tap into the uh, Jennifer Lawrence that we all now all know and love because I mean this this seems like so much her essence that she's bringing forth here and I mean you can see why just she received so many accolades for her performance here because it's just it's the just just this shining star performance here I mean it's just amazing what she does well yeah. and and sort of genetically I mean she is gifted with that sort of genetic ambiguity of age she was 21 when she started shooting this film right um, which is an, an amazing thing. I mean, the depth at which she brings that sort of level of grief, uh, the level of grief of having lost a husband in a really uh, just diabolically sad way to lose her husband, the police officer, you know, buying lingerie for her to try to rekindle their marriage. Like, where, where does she get this stuff? You know, I mean, it's but I just... I love her, her strength and her determination. She's, yeah. you know, she's no pushover. And she seems like she must need saving, but actually she's she's quite capable of being the one who does the saving. Uh, I, I think her character's really well drawn here. Yeah, absolutely. And Bradley Cooper, I have to say, I mean, you know, he kind of he's a hit and miss with me, but I, for the most part, I, I think for the most part, I enjoy him. Um, but I don't think I had seen, and I think even when I first saw this, I didn't connect with Bradley Cooper as much as I did on my rewatch this time. I mean, I was just blown away by everything he's doing here. He's got such a handle on the way that he's dealing with all the different episodes that he has and, and just the, 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 the volatility, the ups and downs. I mean, his, everything is like the non-filter that he's, that he's always having. Um, it just, he really handles it incredibly well. And, you know, what I heard is that he only had like less than six weeks to prep on this because I think Mark Wahlberg was initially on board, but then 
at the last minute, uh, Russell decided to uh, switch over to to Cooper. But isn't uh, it isn't it how lightning sometimes does strike in the right place? And you know the the casting I think has a lot to do with the success of the movie. And, and somehow these two people at uh, the stage they were when they shot this movie in the, in their careers and the age they are. Yeah, I, I think they played up each other really well, and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with, with how they were directed. But I, you know, in terms of casting, I, I think it's just couldn't be more perfect. And clearly, he's somebody who, you know, from this film, he's developed a, a great working relationship with Jennifer Lawrence because, I mean, this is yeah. the first of at least four movies that they have uh, worked on together. So, I mean, they definitely have continued uh, working well on screen together. The other, uh, the other part of their parents, Jackie Weaver, you already mentioned Jackie Weaver as Dolores. Uh, again, yeah. brilliant. Uh, she just exudes the, the role. Brilliant and understated. I, th- yeah. I think she just says, says an awful lot with her face and with you know, the way she delivers her lines. But um, that you know, could, could easily have been an overpowering character. I think it was really, really well done. And she's, you'd never believe that she's Australian. <laughs> Case in point. Is she? <laughs> yeah, she was in, uh, uh, was it Animal Kingdom? Uh, okay. Animal Kingdom. And uh, she was uh, so good in that. And then uh, to see this is like totally uh, no sign of her Aussie accent popping up here. Uh, let's see. We mentioned uh, Chris Tucker. This was his first film since Jackie Brown in 97, uh, other than one Rush Hour movie. Or the three, the, all three Rush Hour movies. All those Rush Hour movies. Uh, and then uh, he did uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which I didn't see. Man, it's fun not to see him as uh, as Ruby Rod. But a great part. I'm sure he read it. So I have to do that. Oh, every time he's in it, too. That When he comes in to teach him how to dance, how to have some soul. Yeah. It's just fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Anupam Kher, we mentioned uh, Dr. Cliff Patel. Uh, it's, uh, it's delightful to see him in here, and uh, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, when he gets off the bus at the game. It's fantastic. And then the other, the rest of the cast, we've got John Ortiz and Shea uh, Wiggum and Julia Stiles. Oh, my goodness. Uh, such an incredible talent in Julia Stiles again for a very, very brief little bit. Paul Herman as Randy, Dash Mihook as Officer Keog, and Bree, Bree B as Nikki uh, that we see briefly in flashback and again at the end. This is a funny thing because as much as it's a cast that we follow around uh, it, through the eyes of uh, Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, uh, this, is, uh, this is a strong ensemble behind them. Very strong ensemble to my eye. I'd agree, and I, I think... Again, going back to the casting, I think that was done extremely well. This was a, uh, we talked about the book briefly. Um, the book came out in 2008 and uh, the Weinsteins, uh, they snatched it up right away. And uh, they actually were hoping that Sidney Pollack and Anthony Minghella would produce this. Unfortunately, they both ended up passing away that uh, same year. But not before Sidney Pollack actually had uh, had a chance to talk to uh, David O. Russell about it. And, uh, you know, just I think knowing the, the issues that, uh, that he had with his son and that really is what drew Russell into this story. And, and he had been attached to it since the beginning. It just took him five years and 25 rewrites to get the script to a place where he said he could felt it, uh, he could direct it because it was so tricky balancing all of the different things going on here, just the different emotions and the ups and downs. Yep. Um, I can only imagine um, how challenging it was. But I thought this was funny. Uh, apparently, when he was writing it, he had Vince Vaughn and Zoe Deschanel as the two leads cast in his... Uh, no, I'm not sure I can picture totally that. Totally different movie there. <laughs> uh, cinematography uh, from Masanobu Takayanagi. Uh, this, was a, this was a living camera. 
it, it was, uh, it, and, I, and I think partially because so much of it is handheld, so much of it is moving through groups, yeah. so much of it is snaking through life. I think it gives it's a great it a real testament to him that it's not, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make you dizzy in any way, or you know, it's not truly. There the clearly was a lot of handheld stuff, and and you know, I think that's what gave the movie its per, the feeling of you know, it was such a personal thing. You know, once one got inside the story um, with these two characters, you know, one felt one was just sort of hovering outside their circle and observing what was going on. Well, I, something I loved about the camera work was how quickly we would move into close-ups on on people. It, it just felt like we were moving right into their their zone, and we just—it it really helped me connect with people that much quicker. I really enjoyed that with the cinematography here. Well, you know, there's this, this sort of frivolity to it too. There are a lot of these really well-timed whip pans, you know, when he's yeah. when yeah. he's finishing these books and he throws a book out the window, and I mean, it's just these <laughs> just wonderful. Some, some of these ex- exactly, some of these camera moves um, uh, are punctuated with music, and, and which give, gives it a sort of double double whammy really um, to, to the audience. Um, but he, you know, David Rossi utilizes that quite, quite a lot in the movie to great effect, I think. Yeah, he, he's great. That's something that he's always been good with is finding, um, I, I, I couldn't name, uh, off the top of my head, some of the other composers that he's worked with, but he always seems to have a real strong balance of, of the score that he uses with just a lot of songs. And it's a, a really eclectic mix too. It's not just, you know, the songs aren't kind of all themed a certain way. It's, it just is really an emotional grouping of songs that seem to kind of help tie into the story and help kind of push it in the directions that he needs it to go. Yeah. I think Danny Elfman's, you know, um, from what I, what, what I got from it was that Danny Elfman's job here was to create, um, a couple of different evocative and quite simple, uh, musical statements that could be utilized in different guises and different arrangements, but at, at, um, at its most basic was just a solo piano, maybe with a little string or something in there. But there's a really nice chord sequence, which goes from, I think, C major to E major, which has a, something slightly nostalgic about it, or this, it moves you somehow. There's something a little squiffy about it, which just suits the characters perfectly. Um, there's nothing, something that's not quite right with it. But I, I, I thought he, he, you know, in typical Danny Alphen way, he, he kind of deploys vocal um, some, some um, wordless vocals in a couple of the cues, but I, I, I thought the score was just spot on. Actually, just exactly what was needed. It didn't uh, it didn't uh, lead the audience too much. But often it was cued at a moment of uncertainty and potential sadness for Bradley Cooper's character. Um, and I, th- I thought. Ooh, ooh. I really like the way it was done. I, I love the way it was done. One of the things I think was most surprising, and I, maybe I'm alone, but it just feels so much like a like not a Danny Elfman score, right? There, it did. It felt very much like it, of a piece with the film and the tone of the film, and didn't yeah. have a very strong Danny Elfman stamp on it, which you know a lot of films he's involved because they do. You know, but I, I think you know he he managed to create something subtle and evocative, and simple. Uh, yet with a, an underlying sort of emotional tug that was that kind of portrayed the the angst that these characters are feeling but um ultimately he was able to play that, i think in one of the final scenes it, it appears as really quite hopeful but often it was it, it, it was a melancholy 
But you know, it's good. It was a really good little piece, though. I like it. He did. Um, he did the music for Goodwill Hunting, and that uh, this kind of reminded me of that music. It kind of had that same sort of feel to it. That was kind of uh, for me. It's the, kind of like that side of Danny Elfman, where he's kind of doing music like that. And that also kind of had a little bit of kind of that hopeful melancholy in that score too. So I, I think he can tap into that pretty nicely. Yeah. I have to say though, it's uh, looking at his uh, his uh, um, list of films on IMDb that he did just the same year that this came out. Um, he was a very busy boy. I mean, I mean, he did Dark Shadows for Tim Burton along with Frank and Weenie. He did Men in Black 3, Hitchcock, and Promised Land, not to mention four shorts. So, I mean, that's a, that a full year for him. <laughs> well, probably a good job that this film, I, I doubt there was more than 15 or 20 minutes of score. Right. In, yeah, you know, probably it, not. Which right. is kind of doable. Had yeah. it been, uh, you know, a sort of Ridley Scott 88 minutes of symphonic music you might have been in trouble <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah no but uh, still it's like uh, it, it's uh, interesting because you think about films and how long films can can take to get made but then you realize sometimes the composing side of it can be so quick um i mean obviously sometimes it can be much longer but sometimes i mean yeah you're getting six six feature films cranked out in a year so it's uh yeah it's pretty amazing we already talked about the dancing, but uh, Mandy Moore, who did the choreography, just did La La Land too. She was, uh, and it's and it's not that Mandy Moore. I thought it was, but I looked her up. <laughs> Apparently, there's another Mandy Moore who uh, who choreographs uh, dance for uh, projects like this. Who I'm sure is delighted by Mandy Moore's success. I think it was wholly successful, you know, because it wasn't so much. It wasn't. It wasn't so scattershot that that one wished it was a little bit more polished and it wasn't so polished that one was taken out of the movie and thought well how the hell are these people doing this yeah, but you know, i'm biased i love this film i think there's, there's a lot about this film i wouldn't change if i could even though i could i would just have it exactly existing in that slightly off uh world all right not that we're going to name them all but it did seem to perform <laughs> handsomely during award season. It, it, it received much love, much love. Uh, it had 88 wins along with another 145 nominations. So that's a pretty hefty, uh, hefty load there. Um, just from the Oscars, it received eight nominations. And it won one for uh, Jennifer Lawrence winning Best Actress. It was her first Oscar. Um, the other seven were uh, Bradley Cooper, of course, for Best Actor. He lost to Daniel Day Lewis in Lincoln, uh, which, uh, you know, that was a pretty strong performance there. Uh, can't argue it. Uh, Robert De Niro uh, lost Best Supporting Actor to Christoph Waltz in Django Unchained. Right. Uh, Jackie Weaver lost Best Supporting Actress to Anne Hathaway in Les Mis. Les Mis. Interestingly, Anne Hathaway was one of the people who was, I think she was originally cast opposite Bradley Cooper in this, but oh. ended up having to drop out due to scheduling conflicts, I'm guessing with Les Mis. So it's kind of interesting how that played out. Um, Best Directing, um, uh, Russell lost to Ang Lee for Life of Pi. Best Adapted Screenplay, uh, he also lost uh, that for, to Chris Terrio for Argo. Best Editing, they lost to uh, William Goldenberg for Argo. And Best Picture lost to Argo. But it was uh, a few a few uh, little trivia bits about the Oscars. It was the first since Million Dollar Baby to be a Big Five nominee, getting the Actor, Actress, Picture, Director, and Writing nominations, and the first since Reds back in 1981 to earn the nominations for all four acting categories. So, And uh, Danny Elfman uh, performed fairly well too, right? Well, I, you know, Danny Elfman actually did. I guess he got a BMI Film and Music TV Award for his score in this, and uh, and then he was nominated for Composer of the Year uh, uh, at the World Soundtrack Awards. But that was probably just because uh, he was so prolific. This movie. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> 
Uh, we do have just one other bit of trivia, and this is, I know, as a fan of the film, something that you'll want to take notes on, and that is, can you at home make a Krabby Snack and a homemade? I, actually, I don't. I watched the film again yesterday because I knew we were doing this, and I, I really don't know what a Krabby Snack is. Is it, is it like <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a seafood thing we're talking about here? Well, thankfully, Andy, uh, who does all of the deep journalistic work for these film discussions, has has found the answer. And it is. According to uh, Matthew Quick's mother, uh, Matthew Quick, remember, is the guy who wrote the book. Yeah. Uh, his mother, Doreen, used to make Krabby Snacks. And she says it's a canapé that uh, she would make for game days and other gatherings. The recipe consists of canned crab meat. And processed cheese cooked oh. together and spread onto English muffins, then cut mm. into quarters. Wow. Okay. So next time you want to uh, watch the big game, now you can make Krabby Snacks. <laughs> as far as homemades, they are beef rolls covered with breadcrumbs and simmered in tomato sauce. I'm, not, I'm okay. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, not, I'm, not actually, I'm not actually hungry. <laughs> I just want to hear Jackie Weaver say it a few more times. Yeah, right. She's brilliant. Uh, uh, the, and, and the last bit of trivia before we jump into the numbers, the Russian title of this film is, uh, translates into my boyfriend is a psycho. All the Russians, <laughs> they, they know how to play their subtlety, right? Yeah, right. You know, it's funny. So, I was, I was yeah. reading, reading about titles for this and I guess silver linings is a concept that is kind of uniquely English. And so it, they actually had a number of, uh, a bit of trouble translating the title of this film into foreign titles because right. it, uh, it, it was a tricky, a tricky, uh, description. We have a, a number of, of folks in, in Europe and uh, the Netherlands and uh, across Scandinavia. We hope, uh, uh listeners, will write in with creative translations for this film, because I imagine that'll be another delightful game of Stump, Andy, and Pete. So, Excellent. Uh, Andy, tell, uh, why don't you let us know how to do, uh, in the, the, um, how to do in the numbers? Uh, David O. Russell spent $21 million to make this movie, which is about, it wasn't that long ago, it was about $22 million in today's dollars. Uh, the movie had a limited release November 16th, 2012, opposite everyone's favorite vamp wolf romance finale, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Part 2 as well as Anna Karenina. It went wide on Christmas Day, and it maxed out at 745 theaters. It was a slow burn, but its Oscar nominations really helped out, and in the end, the movie made just over $132 million domestically and about $104.5 million internationally, making a grand total of just over $248 million in today's dollars. That gives David's movie an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.85 million. A truly fantastic profit. And with the cost as low as it was for this film, the movie ended up earning more than 11 times its budget. So way to go, David O. Fantastic. That's stunning. All right. Well, this is the part I know everybody has been waiting for. It is time for us to rank it. We're going to head over to flickchart.com. Flickchart.com slash the next reel will get you to our profile. But you can just swipe over in your show notes and you'll see the link to Flickchart. You can just tap it. It'll take you right to Silver Linings Playbook. Now, uh, a review of the rules for our guest. Uh, We're we're putting ourselves in the headspace of being on a deserted island. And all you have is Silver Linings Playbook and one other movie and a device of some sort to watch it on. And you have to choose, as we list off the other movie, which one you would prefer to watch. I have a feeling I know where you're going to go. If there's a movie that we list that we have you haven't seen, uh, Andy and I will break the tie with a, a, a rigorously adult game of rock, paper, scissors. Okay. Uh, and uh, here we go. Andy, Silver Linings Playbook, or... First up, it's opposite Hot Fuzz. Silver Linings. <laughs> I'll say Silver Linings on this one. 
Ah, the gentleman's win. I will also say Silver Linings Playbook. All right, next up, Silver Linings Playbook or Trading Places. Oh, definitely, definitely Silver, Silver Linings. Linings Playbook. Yep. All right, Silver Linings Playbook or ah, the Disney Classic, 101 Dalmatians, another speakeasy we did recently. I'm saving Silver Linings. Yeah, Silver Linings for me. And me. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook or Black Hawk Down, speaking of Ridley Scott. I'm going to say Silver Linings here. For the Desert Island, definitely. Yeah, Silver Linings <laughs> takes it. Silver Linings Playbook or Jaws? Getting tough now. I'm going with Jaws. I uh, I, I think I'm Jaws too. That, that Helen's a, a very special corner of my heart. Oh, I know. I'm st- I, 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 I don't agree with either of you, but I... <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what makes this fun. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. All right. What's next? All right. Next up, we have Silver Linings Playbook or a much less fun film to watch, Requiem for a Dream. Silver oh. Linings Playbook, please. Requiem for a Dream. Really? Yeah, I love that film. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, as do we. But, whoo. I I would say Requiem also, actually. it's a, It is a brutal, brutal film to watch, but man, is it powerful. Well, right. me and my talking refrigerator are going to stick with Silver Linings. <laughs> <laughs> Silver Linings Playbook or Alien. Ah, oh, more Ridley Scott. I am Alien. I'm Silver Linings. Alien. Outnumbered. Look at this. All right. Silver Linings Playbook or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I'm Raiders. <laughs> Raiders. Are you kidding? Straight out of my childhood. Outnumbered again. No, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. uh, uh, Silver Linings Playbook or All the President's Men. This is, oh, boy. I, I have to be all the president's men. I've I, I have allowed presidents to win too many times. It, it it's, it's too far at the top of my list. I'm a little torn on this one actually. I might say Silver Linings Playbook, but uh, you both are all the president's men. So no no no, no, no he's Silver Linings. Oh you're not. Oh sorry, yeah. I thought you said all the presidents men. Okay, well there you go. Silver Linings takes that one. That's it. It leaves Silver Linings Playbook at number seventeen on our chart, and uh, we have the honor of uh, having Harry on the show to. This is number 300, Pete. This is our 300th entry. This is our 300th movie on that we have talked about on this show. That's fantastic. So there you I go. I didn't even so know that. And we're, it's, we're having an anniversary. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming that on a, a star rating for our partners over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, I'm assuming for you, Harry, this is a five-star film out of five. Yeah, I, uh-huh. it is. It is. It's, it's so quirky and it's so dysfunctional. And it made me laugh and it made me... It didn't make me cry, but it, it, it had a lot of emotion. And, uh, yeah, I, I just loved it. I thought it was a, a heck of a difficult balancing act, and I thought the filmmakers pulled it off perfectly. I, I have, this is the third round for me, and I, it gets better every time I see it. And, and I, I think that's, a, that's a, a real testament to the quality of the film. And I, it, it makes me like David O. Russell's work even more. I feel like I like the other movies of his more as a result of how much I like this film. It is also a five-star for me. Yeah, and for me, definitely five stars. You know, it's so funny because I, I remember seeing this back when it came out in theaters, um, and I, I remember enjoying it. And I hadn't thought of it much. And you picked it as as, your one, as, as the one you wanted to talk about. And I was like, that's an interesting choice. Uh, and then I watched it again, and it just floored me as to how much it moved me. I was laughing. I was crying. I mean, I just loved every single instant of the film. And when it was over, I was just so excited. I ran into wake my wife up and say, oh, you have to watch this movie. It's so good. <laughs> Uh, it just it really struck me so absolutely five star film for me so uh, and I'm so excited that you picked it thanks for bringing it to our uh, to our show so that we could all chat about it today oh great thanks for asking me 
as far as uh, as far as you go, Harry, um, if people do you have a home online that people track you down? Do you do you tweet? No, I have a uh, I guess a fan page on Facebook. Okay, okay, great. So people okay. can check you out over on Facebook. Great. I think so. Uh, and then I will point out that I do think people should go over to the Song Exploder podcast and check out the uh, fantastic episode that you were on over there about The Martian. That was yeah, a really enjoyable that, episode. That, that's, that's a great podcast. Yeah, really, really great. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for everybody out there, we hope you enjoy the show. If you like what you heard, follow us on all the social media platforms out there, including Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and now Patreon. If you enjoy the work we do here, talking about great movies and inter- interviewing great movie people like Harry Gregson Williams, consider visiting patreon.com slash the next reel and making a donation. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Until next time, I'm off to go make some crappy snacks and homemades. <laughs> I'm gonna use you to be my friend